0: Every scientist knows that he must construct his mathematical formulae uh, based on well-defined principles. A metallurgist understands that different metals have ranging coefficients of expansion. And a chemical engineer knows that he can rely on atoms and molecules to act in a predetermined and predictable way. There's no doubt about it. When a chemical engineer wants to work with molecules and work with atoms and he combines them and he causes chemical reactions to take place, he knows that they are going to act in a predictable way. Why? Because there is a creator. There is a great God who not only created the world we live in, but gave us laws to control and determine the way the creation works and takes place. God is not fickle. He doesn't turn gravity on and off. Have you noticed that? Have any of you been floating around the room lately? Good, I'm glad. Because I can tell you, if he did turn gravity back on, bang, we'd all hit the floor. So you can see that we rely on predictable laws that God has created each one of us knows that we are going to be able to at the flick of a switch turn on the power turn on the light and because of the generators that are down at the power station we know that the light is going to be on there are laws of electromagnetism at work and so we as God's people are specially privileged to understand and realize that the great lawgiver did not just limit his lawmaking to the physical world but he has given spiritual laws that will also make sure that we have the happiness that we should and would like to have <clears throat> in other words there are spiritual laws at work right now that you and I can know about and we need to know about and we most certainly need to be keeping. So this afternoon I thought that we would take a little time to, uh, uh, to go through some of the principles of God's law. You know if we break the, the laws of say gravity we will experience the consequences. Uh, You remember that we as young children learnt about gravity at an early age. Uh, When we were trying to learn to walk, we would trip and we would fall over. We also realised that if you took a bowl that your mother was trying to give you your breakfast from and took it out of the high chair on the side and let go, it would drop. Oh, that was great! (laughs) Don't you remember seeing your children do that? Yep, gravity is a lot of fun for kids until it hurts and you know what it's similar in our spiritual lives when we break God's spiritual law it hurts and so that's why God's people and in particular God's church has the important responsibility of upholding maintaining and strengthening the very laws of God And so I thought it would be helpful for us to talk about God's law. You know, here in the Bible Belt of the United States, theologians here uh, have made a fine art of trying to prove that the Ten Commandments are, quote, nailed to the cross or, quote, done away, end quote. Well, God's church has consistently been able to prove that God's law is indeed operating just as powerfully as the law of gravity we've also been able to show that it is the love of God that provides his law for our benefit and our response to that love of God let's read it here in 1st John chapter 5 and verse 3 1st John chapter 5 and verse 3 <clears throat> you know the whole book of 1st John is about God's love And we read very clearly here. It says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Did you read that? They're not burdensome. They're not onerous. They're not heavy. They're not an imposition. God's commandments are strong, pure, clean, and beautiful. And when we, as God's people, love God's law, even as the great King David said, Oh, how love I thy law. And we allow the spirit of Christ and the spirit of God to come into our hearts and our minds and to fill us with a love of God's law and not an antipathy towards God's law. Then God is able to bless us. So I do want to show how we can understand God's law as he wants us to. And I also want to show that we cannot keep God's law perfectly by ourselves, but that there is a way for us to live that will please God. So, this sermon is titled, I always like to put a sermon title, it helps me to make sure that you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Well, the sermon title is, The Third Law. The Third Law. Hmm, am I talking about the Third Commandment? no I'm not you're going to see what I'm talking about as we go through if we're going to talk about a third law it presupposes that there's a first and a second law so let us establish just what I'm talking about let us uh, go to Matthew chapter 19 Matthew chapter 19 we're going to come to understand that the first law is really God's law The Ten Commandments and, and more importantly, the spiritual magnifying of the law when Jesus Christ brought to us. Matthew chapter 19 and in verse 16. Matthew chapter 19, reading verse 16 says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may enter eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? no one is good but one that is God but if you want to enter into life keep the commandments oh he says well what commandments he said to him which ones Jesus said you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness honor your father and your mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself now does the mean the fact that Christ didn't give all 10 commandments mean that we don't have to keep the one of you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not profane God's name, you shall not keep the you shall keep, remember the sabbath day to keep it holy? No, it's clear that Christ was referring to the 10 commandments. The young man said to him, "All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack?" Jesus said to him, "If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me; but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he for he had great possessions, so that was what that was the law of of this of having no other gods before God or or idolatry. So we can see here that Jesus Christ endorsed and and strengthened. The Ten Commandments. Let's go to James chapter 2 because we can see here that James also uh, endorsed the Ten Commandments. James chapter 2 and verse 10. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, all Ten Commandments. Break one, you've broken them all. It says, so speak, and so do those who will be judged uh, uh, by the law of liberty. Did you notice that? James called the Ten Commandments a law of liberty. Not a law of bondage. Not a law of, of onerous you know, restriction, you know, God's law is there to protect us. It's like a fence around our life. Some years ago, some uh, liberal-minded PTA leader got very upset with the fact that the um, uh, playground for the children at a school had a fence around it. And uh, so... uh, They said, that's restrictive. We shouldn't have a fence. We'll take down the fence. So they took down the fence. And do you know what happened? The children all congregated in a tight little group around the the door of the school. They felt unsafe because the fence had been taken away. Do you know what they did? They reinstated the fence. The children went out and they played in the whole of the... Playground right up to the limits of the fence and they felt safe and happy again. It's the same in our lives. We need the Ten Commandments to give us protection and safety. And so we can see that we have a responsibility in God's church to uphold the Ten Commandments. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5 now, uh, verses 17 to 19. Matthew chapter 5, And verses seventeen to nineteen. Christ said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfil. And I can almost hear the voice of some uh, you know Bible belt preacher saying, See there, it says he came to (laughs) fulfil. And of course, by saying that they're really saying, He came to destroy But what did you just read there? Do not think that I came to destroy the law. Obviously, fulfill does not mean to destroy. In fact, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 42, we have a... Hold your place in Matthew 5, because we'll be coming back. But Isaiah 42 truly does establish God's law in the New Testament context. Isaiah chapter 42... And verse 21, Uh, I apologize for my American accent. (laughs) Isaiah 42 verse 21, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake, look at this, he will exalt the law and make it honorable. Do you know what actually it says in the old King James? He will magnify the law. And if we go back now to Matthew 5, where we were, hold your place, uh, you go back to where we were in Matthew chapter 5, and notice what it says here. Verse 33, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne nor by the earth for it is his footstool nor by Jerusalem for it is the city of the great king so what do people swear by? heavens above what else do they say? Jerusalem have you heard people say that sort of thing? you know God says Christ says but let your yes be yes and your no no for whatever is more than these is from the evil one and he gives other he amplifies others he amplifies the uh, and magnifies the the commandment on not committing adultery, on not hating, uh, you know, your 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 brother, uh, which is the same as murder. Let's go back to verse eighteen, Matthew five eighteen. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle. Now that word jot is actually the old Hebrew letter yud, the yud, and the tittle is a little inflection point in the Hebrew language he says not by uh, I say to you till heaven and earth pass away one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled verse 19 is really instructive whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does and teaches them and I would like to say that in the living church of God, we do teach the Ten Commandments. Whoever teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, the corollary is if you, do, if you say that the commandments are done away with, you will be called least and you will be called nothing. So there's a big responsibility on religious leaders to uphold and to endorse the Ten Commandments. Notice uh, as we go to uh, Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, and this is the pièce de résistance. That's for Mr. Appardian's uh, benefit. (laughs) Always try to drop a bit of French in there, Mr. Appardian, although it does have an Australian accent to it. Pièce de résistance. Romans chapter 7 and uh, notice verse 12 it says therefore the law talking about the ten commandments the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good it's not unholy unjust and evil the ten commandments are good just quickly go across to Romans 8 verse 7 Romans chapter 8, verse 7. And this is the, why, the reason people do not like the law of God. It says in verse 7, because the carnal, that's the fleshly, natural, normal, human mind, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. You know what, brethren? You and I, by nature, resist God's law we don't like it we don't like the fact that God tells us how to live our life we basically say to God you keep your nose out of my business I will determine what is right and I will determine what is wrong God says I'm sorry I'm your creator and I have sent a book with you to read and to study and come to an understanding of how you should live did you know that there have been over 6 billion Bibles printed? And booksellers tell us that it is also the most commonly stolen book. Amazing. But I know you all paid for yours. <laughs> <laughs> so let's now go back to romans chapter 7 and note again verse verse 12 romans 7 verse 12 therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good do you remember i said that i would the title of the sermon was the third law well if you're going to have the third law there has to be a first and second and i've just given you the first that's the ten commandments that's the law by which we measure ourselves that is the law which we strive to obey and keep that is the law that we love because we love god and we love our fellow man you know those last commandments who do they really protect and look after yes they protect us but your neighbor is a fortunate person to have you as a neighbor because you don't steal, you don't look, look after, you know, uh, lust after his wife or covet his, his, uh, his uh, you know, particular things in his backyard, uh, his uh, barbecue or his uh, lawnmower or whatever, and decide that you should have that. You are one of God's people. You love the law, and you believe that it is a good thing and a fine thing. You know, there was a time when the Ten Commandments used to be read in the schools of America. That it would be put up as a a plaque in the schools of America. Until about thirty years ago, some different-minded people said that that was an imposition upon them, the children, and they demanded that the Ten Commandments be taken down. And when they were taken down, America started to go through the sufferings and the difficulties that they're going through. And not just America. I'm not picking on America. We Australians are far worse than Americans. Well, in some areas. <laughs> <clears throat> no, we're all in it together. The British, the Americans, the Canadians. Uh, we're all God's, uh, the descendants of Israel. And we have en masse uh, overthrown and rejected God's law. So that's the first law. What is the second law I'm talking about? Well, we need to read on in Romans chapter 7. We read verse 12, so let's read verse 13. Let's read verse 13 of Romans 7. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual. Oh, did you read that? The law is spiritual? I thought it was just a bunch of ten rules that a bunch of wandering nomads in the desert came up with. Isn't that how it came about? No, the great God in heaven heaven thundered those laws from Mount Sinai and they were emblazoned in stone and given to Moses to take down to the children of Israel. They came from God. So let's read on. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, I humanly, Paul said, am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Have you been caught up in that conundrum? where you set out with good intentions at the beginning of the day, only to find at the end of the day when you're praying to God, you have to acknowledge all the times throughout the day that you broke the law of God. I do, and I'm sure you do. And that's the dilemma that Paul found himself in. Let's read on. Verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good, But now it is no longer I who do it, notice this everyone, but sin that dwells in me. Uh Aha. Paul has been able to do an important thing. He's been able to isolate the component that is within him that causes him to sin. So that he's actually able to deal with it in a logical clear way it's no longer just an emotive thing it's no longer just a oh I feel bad because I've sinned no Paul has thought it through Paul has said I've got to get to the bottom of this problem what's the problem let's read on he says but it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me for I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. And so he says, for the good that I would will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, I know how you've a lot of you have read these in the past and you got the wills and won'ts and wills and can eyes and won't I's and, and you get all caught up. You know what I mean? The key to it is to read it slowly and to understand it as he writes it. It's really quite clear. So I'm going to be doing that. Let's go back to verse 19. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, That I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul has been able to identify, isolate, and deal with the root core of the problem. That is sin that is inherent and innately within us. You'll notice that he is not being, how can I put it, You know sort of wishy-washy about this he is very clear and so it says in verse 21 and this is the second law you ready I find then a law that evil is present with me the one who wills to do good for I delight in the law of God that's the first law remember we identified the first law as the law of God but he says there's another law Uh, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man verse 23 but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin that's the second law you have it working in you I have it working in me there is a battle there is a war going on all the time he uses that term verse 23 he says but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind now brethren you know what I'm talking about you know that battle that goes on in your mind should I shouldn't I will I won't I uh, can I can't I etc etc and sometimes there's almost a snap decision that has to be made because sin is at the door it's so close And you think, will I? Yeah, why not? (laughs) We do. And we give in. And we knowingly sin. Now thankfully we have the blood of Jesus Christ that will cover that sin. And we're grateful to him. He knows us. He came and lived the life of a man for 33 and a half years and never did sin. But he was tempted at every point, even as we are. Aren't you glad you've got an older brother like that? Aren't you? Aren't you grateful that that man, that big, robust, strong man with, with big muscles and, and, a, and a strong set jaw, with a fierce determination and a total trust and reliance upon his heavenly father to seek his will and his life in him, that he lived that life and he didn't sin so that you and I might have eternal life. I'm glad. What's the first thing you're going to say to Jesus Christ when you meet him? Thank you. Isn't it? Aren't we all going to say that? Aren't we all just going to say to Jesus Christ, I couldn't have done it without you? And he says, He will say, It was my pleasure i'm glad i could be there for you you see we know our weakness we know our frailty we know like paul that the law of sin is operating within each one of us let's read on in verse 24 this is where paul does get emotional he says "O oh, wretched man that i am who will deliver me from this body of death i thank god through jesus christ our lord So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. What did he call that law? Holy, just, and good. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Now, I used to read this particular section of scripture, and I got to the end of chapter 7, and I never went on to chapter 8. Well, I might have, but I didn't understand that there really shouldn't be a chapter break the chapter 8 verse 1 just carries right on with the same subject and this is where we're going to discover the third law you ready let's read on romans chapter 8 verse 1 there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in christ jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit now here in verse 2 is the third law For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Law number three frees you from law number two so that you can keep law number one. Isn't this amazing? And you know in your own life When the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is in you, your life changes. You know that whereas in the past you might have been selfish and mean and nasty, a gossip, impatient, proud and opinionated, arrogant and conceited, that since God has brought you to a complete surrender in your life, to God and Jesus Christ you have given your life to God and Christ and he now lives his life in you and it is demonstrably shown in your life by your conduct by the words that you say by the thoughts that you have in your mind and your reaction to other people you know a converted person a truly converted person will understand what i'm talking about a truly converted person will be aware of the moments in their life where the law of the the law of the life the law of the spirit of life in christ jesus is working in their minds does it mean that this person will never sin of course not we all still sin But you know what? We do not habitually sin. And we do not, when we sin, just brush it off and say, it doesn't matter. We are broken up. We are hurt because we have hurt God and Jesus Christ. And we are determined, determined to change our life for the better. And so we go on our knees and we confess our sins to God. And as it says in 1 John chapter 1, that he is ready to forgive us. And we stand up with a clear conscience, with a boldness in Jesus Christ. And we say, I'm going to march on forward again, another day. And Christ and I are going to have the victory. And we change our lives. We examine every nook and cranny of our mind and our heart. And we think about it and we examine it and we say to God, with your strength, God, with the life of Jesus Christ, we're going to be victorious. And you know what? Jesus Christ is in heaven. He watches, he hears, he sees. And he says, I'll give you that strength and I will give you the help that you need it's a marvellous process it's invigorating it is enlivening it is absolutely a wonderful experience to go through when you have cleared your conscience and your life on your knees before your God and you get up from your knees and you go out there with such determination and zeal now hey I'm painting the perfect picture. (laughs) You and I know that it's up here and most of us, you know, come in about here. (laughs) But unless we keep the the standards high, unless we hold high the zeal and the determination to be Christ-like in our lives and let him live his life in us, then we we will fall short. But it is possible for us in the living church of God to truly live by the name of the church. We are called the living church of God because it is the life of Jesus Christ. It is, as we read there in verse 2 of chapter 8, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's what makes us the living church of God. And let me tell you, folks, the life I'm talking about is not oxygenated uh, red corpuscles. It is not, you know, the the fact that the blood receives the the glycogen and the glucose from the masticated and uh, digested food in our stomach. That's not the life I'm talking about. I'm talking about eternal life. The life that Jesus Christ has at this time that is being lived in his people on earth today. That's how exciting this is. That's what it's about. So as I said, for years I would read this chapter and and be encouraged that Jesus Christ delivered me from the body of death. But, you know, when you add this dimension of the third law, it gives you a strength and a power that will help you to carry on. So here is the key to overcoming. It involves an awareness that we cannot live a perfect, law-abiding life by ourselves. You see, the the people who say the law is done away and Christ did it all for you the reason they do that and the reason they say that is because we cannot live a sinless perfect life on our own so they say well you don't have to worry about it because Christ did it all for you no I'm going to show you a really important scripture here <clears throat> in Romans chapter 6 sorry Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 Romans 5 verse 6 it says for when we were still without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, okay, so it is the blood of Christ that justifies us, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through his death. So his blood justifies us. His death reconciles us. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by what? His life. Not his death. You know, if you had have asked me when I was a, a Presbyterian years and years ago, how are you saved? I'd say I'm saved by the death of Jesus Christ. Is that what most people think? Look what it said. It says, we shall be saved by his life. You see, Jesus Christ is alive right now, seated at the right hand of God. And he is living eternal life. And his eternal life is the gift that he gives us upon repentance and baptism and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. So we are saved because salvation is a process. You know these people that say to, and they they're in, they have good intentions, they're sincere. I'm born again, I'm saved. No, they're not born again. They're begotten, and they are not yet saved. They are in the sense that when we are baptized, we are saved, but the the process of salvation is a continuing process. I I often liken it to marriage. You know, on a a beautiful girl's wedding day, she gets dressed in white and she looks beautiful, and her father leads her down the aisle, and everyone goes, ah. And it's the loveliest day in her life, right? And it's the day she gets married. Is that her marriage? No. It's the first day of her marriage. Yes, she's married. But the marriage continues till death do us part. It's the same with salvation. On the day you were baptized, you also were saved by the blood. You know, not saved by the blood of Christ, but you were reconciled and justified. But the salvation takes a lifetime and that's the great thing about the Christian life the battles we go through the successes we have the failures we have you know that the ups and downs you go through sometimes you're on top and you're close to God and you feel yeah only to go <laughs> and find yourself you know, dis- discouraged and down and, 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 uh, and needing a lift Well, that's where the life in Jesus Christ will do it for you. He is alive. He is not dead. Do you remember Mr. Armstrong used to say, many Christians worship a dead cross, a dead Christ hanging on a cross. He said, the Jesus Christ that I serve is alive and seated at the right hand of the Father and is intelligently involved in every aspect of your life and your life and your life at the back. Jesus Christ is actively involved. He listens to you. He's interested in you. And he will guide and direct events as you put your life in his hands, as you submit and surrender yourself to him. He opens up doors. He gives opportunities. Sometimes he will punish us and and correct us because we do need correction. But overall... the great God in heaven and Jesus Christ are on a crusade for each one of us to give us a life that will be the most incredible life that you could ever imagine we are in training right now for rulership in the kingdom of God and to be members of the family of God to be sons in his family and that's why every day that goes by is a little capsule of opportunity for each one of us to dedicate our lives more perfectly to god and jesus christ and he's there for us he listens he hears and he wants us to succeed <clears throat> you know it's interesting that uh, mr Meredith's favorite scripture should address this whole subject let's go to galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 but i'm reading from the king james version And I think we've got to make a little change as we read it. (laughs) Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, not in the Son of God, of the Son of God. It is faith, Christ's faith being lived in us so let me make the connection prior to your conversion let me tell you what your life consisted of prior to your baptism let me tell you what your life consisted of it consisted of the physical life that is inherent that came to you from your mother when you were um, when you came to full nine month development or if you were a little premature (laughs) a little earlier but as you burst forth out onto the world stage with a great gusto of, of crying and, 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 and red face and, and you let the world know that you'd arrived, God put within you, he put the, the breath of life and your whole body was invigorated and enlivened with life. But it was, as Mr Armstrong used to call it, a physiochemical life. And it could only be sustained by the milk from your mother and the air that you breathed for those first few days and weeks of your life. And then after a while you were able to take other foods until finally you could take solid food. And you grew and you you grew to adulthood and, 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 and full maturity. Your mind developed but it was still only physical life and you had no power within you to ensure that when you died you could live on you did not have an immortal soul you did not have eternal life but there came a point where God called you and placed his understanding in your mind and you responded and he responded and you responded and he responded and he gave you the gift of repentance and you came to see that you could not run your life by yourself and that you had no hope of eternal life within yourself and you had no power and you had no strength and so you threw yourself on the mercy of God and you asked and begged God to take you your mind your will your purpose and you said to God it's yours you do with it as you will I don't want my will anymore I want your will God and you went to the minister and said I hands up I surrender I surrender to God I surrender to his will I don't want to do what I have done in the past And so you repented, the minister acknowledged and recognized and saw that you were ready for baptism. You were baptized and in your prayers, which only you could do between yourself and your God, you thanked him for the fact that you had been given the gift of the Holy Spirit and more importantly the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so you began a life, a little like a a little baby, crawling and then standing up and falling down, skinning your knee bumping over and hitting your head just like little children do until you learn to trust in christ you would anticipate the times that would lead to sin you anticipated the times that would lead to disappointment and so you would prepare yourself in your prayers that morning and say god when i go to work this morning that girl that sits across over there who always gives me a hard time give me the wisdom to answer her wisely but let me not be vindictive and let me let me be sensible and 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 give me favor with my boss and help me with the the contract that we're working on at the moment and god while you're at it help me to be a better husband help me to be far more thoughtful and kind and 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 ready to help my wife oh and god help me to be a good father to your children help me to guide and direct them and give them instruction oh and god when i when i lose my temper will you give me the strength that i will not lose my temper oh oh and while i'm at it god (laughs) and and you go through these things and you you talk with him and he's listening now sometimes i have found that when you ask for his help you actually fall over worse do you know why because god said "Mm -hmm, i got your attention now i want to know if you're really serious about this and sometimes we end up really crying out god save me i've had to do that i'm sure you god save me from myself and my foolishness and my flapping mouth save me god from my You know what I think is humor, and I end up hurting and offending people. And so when we do that, we go through. You know, there are people here who've been in the church for fifty years plus, and they're still on a daily bat on a daily basis battling what we read about in Romans chapters seven and eight. But remember the third law. Now I want to give you an analogy to help you. Every time I drive around North Carolina, I'm always amazed that you have all these little things, first in flight. First in flight, ah. Wilbur and Orville. (laughs) Kitty Hawk. (laughs) That's right. Carolina is rightly and justly proud of the fact that you had a part in the very first powered flight. And, and I think that's a, a thing to be rightly proud of. But let me take the analogy a little further. If you consider and think for a moment that there are all of God's laws, physical laws. <clears throat> the first law, you might say, of all the physical laws that exist, the, you know, the sec- first and second laws of thermodynamics, the, the laws of... Uh, of um, chemistry that we talked about and all the other laws the, the, you might say the very first law is that those laws are always predictable they are inviolate and so it is that if you go to uh, a- an airfield to an airport what do you see? Well you see airplanes that are out there on the, on the uh, apron getting ready to take off or maybe they're just landing or whatever but they have all incorporated the law that is called the law of aerodynamics now what does the law of aerodynamics allow to happen it allows for the law of gravity to be overcome so that that law is greater than the law of gravity Now I am not uh, an aeronautical engineer, I'm a minister of religion. (laughs) So if I explain the the principle of aerodynamics this way and if I don't get it totally right then don't write me an email. (laughs) But basically a wing is shaped like this is it not, sort of has this big leading edge and then it comes back like that with a a flat bottom, well almost. See, don't write to me. <laughs> but if you take a wing and you put a jet engine on the bottom of it and it has thrust, it, the, the thrust will cause that wing to go through the air and because the air going under the wing travels slower than the air that is forced up and over the wing, then you get lift. Now, that's as far as I'm going to go into it. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about airfoils and, you know, drag and all the other things, right? Now, you think about that. Isn't that so much like what I've been talking about? That Jesus Christ is the power that drives the wing through the air, which gives us the lift to overcome the law of gravity or the law of sin. You know, what would would happen? see i didn't even, i didn 't do it I, I, I didn't do anything but you know what it was going to happen but I tell you what if I put two wings on here <laughs> and a jet engine vroom, <laughs> they, they, they'd get a they 'd get a cup of tea at the back of the of the hall <laughs> excuse me <laughs> so you can imagine that these huge seven four sevens and the new Air, airbus three eighty these super Uh, airplanes that that can carry four and five hundred passengers amazing and all the, the the weight of the fuel and these jet engines can give the thrust that forces the wings through the air and they get that lift so what's the analogy we need the spirit of the life of Jesus Christ in us to give us the power to give us the lift To overcome the law of sin. That's what we need because if we don't, I'm sorry, we'll crash and burn. It's that simple. Turn off the engines, and airplanes don't stay in the sky. They just don't. And you know what? Here's the most important thing, and I want to make this clear to you all. If you have been baptized and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, you cannot take a vacation from being a Christian. You can't go off for about three months being carnal, doing your own thing. We have to maintain the spiritual life. But if you're like, I feel, I love that life. I love God's law. I love the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. It's a day of rejuvenation. It's great to be able to put aside the things that I do for six days of the week and have this one day, this 24-hour period in which I rest and revitalize my life. And you do too. I love God's law that my wife and I are protected by the seventh commandment. I love the fact that whenever a thought comes into my mind, I walk past a (coughs) brand new Audi uh, sports car in the in the um, airport in Gatwick in London, and the fellow said, "You want a ticket?" I said, "I don't gamble." Ah, oh, it's just not gambling. This is a competition. <laughs> human mind, human nature. <laughs> no, I said, "You're wrong. It's gambling, and I don't gamble." Oh, okay. <laughs> but you know what? I can I can walk past those things, and and I just think I'm free. I'm free of the burden and the snare of gambling. It is a curse. Gambling is one of the worst sins that you can fall into, of covetousness and desiring that which is not yours. So think about God's law as he sees it. Think about the fact that God loves his law and his way and that you and I can be a part of that wonderful law and the imp- and the keeping of it in god's kingdom so we know that we are not saved by our works you know the living church of god has been accused of being a church that teaches salvation through works that is a lie our works cannot save us does that mean we shouldn't have any works no no We need to have works. Let's read what it says here in Titus chapter 2, verse 6. But you know what, folks? It's no longer our works. They are the works of Jesus Christ being practiced and lived in us. Titus chapter 2, and verse 6. This is speaking to young men, but it can apply to all ages, and all sexes, or both sexes. I just, I just, I I could feel the eyes of Bill Bomer burning into me. (laughs) Mr. Editorial himself. (laughs) Thank you, sir. We do appreciate uh, very much. You know, I might just say how hard it is uh, to edit. It is one of the hardest things to do because there's such a set lot of sensitivity when a person writes an article they think it's a perfect piece of work (laughs) and they need to know that it has to be edited and it needs to be done by an impartial person who's not emotionally and emotively tied to the work (laughs) so anyway that's a a plug for the editorial department (laughs) here in titus chapter 2 verse 6 it says likewise exhort the young men to be sober minded in all things showing yourself look at this to be a pattern of good works it says in doctrine showing integrity reverence and incorruptibility this is to the young men young men you should have a pattern of good works that means a habit a reoccurring habit and pattern of good works not just that you, you know, don't get drunk on, on Thursday nights. <laughs> it means you don't get drunk. It says that you, you have a pattern of good works, of kind works. How many of you in this room are looking around for opportunities to serve? Are there people here, ladies, widows? who find it, hard, uh, find it difficult to get to church on a Sabbath have you thought to yourself I think I need to go and talk with um, uh, Mr. Uh, Pyle or Mr. Lyons and ask if uh, if there's someone that needs a lift to church no we don't tend to do that we think well I get in my car I drive to church and that's it after all it would put us out would it not To go out of our way to pick someone up? That's a pattern of good works. Let's read on. In doctrine showing integrity, verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. They are the patterns of good works. And whose works are they? They're not ours, they're Jesus Christ's if you remember I gave a sermon some time ago on self-righteousness the problem with self-righteousness is that it is our own righteousness and it's of no value to God but Christ's righteousness being lived in us leaves us without any room for feeling vain and egotistic and self-righteous but rather we look for opportunities to have a pattern of good works and when we exercise that, those good works who gets the credit Jesus Christ but we do get the credit for allowing Christ to live his life in us and giving that pleasure to God Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 Philippians chapter 2 <clears throat> and in verse 3 Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so this is where we are wanting to emulate, wanting to live the life of Christ, to be like him who said in John chapter 5, verse 30. Let's go there. John 5 and verse 30. And we can say these same words to Christ, to God. John chapter 5 and verse 30. He said when speaking of his relationship with his heavenly father, he said, I can of myself do nothing. This is John 5 and verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the father who sent me. So let me ask you all did you totally surrender to God when you were baptized or did you have some reservations did you hold back certain things and say well God uh, I'd like your help here, here and here but don't worry about this area that's <laughs> that's my area that's my life and you just, just stay right out of my life in that area now God wants 100% total surrender and when we do it you know the interesting thing about it? There is a great sense of relief. You don't have to defend yourself when people accuse you. You don't have to worry about your image and your personality and what people think of you. You don't have to be always on the lookout for, for uh, whether, how you appear somewhere or how you, uh, uh, you know how, if you're respected or not. Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation he was just nobody and you know we can do the same thing it doesn't mean that you grovel around like a you know an, an imbecile it means that you just walk softly through life not taking yourself too seriously thinking about other people's concerns what did it say in philippians we sort read that before esteeming others better than yourself it is the most liberating experience to go through to be nobody (laughs) and then God can use you and do with you as he will you know I'll ask some of you younger people why is it that so many older people look wise and are wise they've been through tough times in life they've been up here and down there (laughs) and nobody's No reputation. You know, if we think we're something... I remember when I was in my 30s, there were so many of my friends who were now, you know, married and kids and great career. And they thought, yeah, I've made it. (laughs) Made what? (laughs) Made what? Life's not about that. Life's about being a servant of Jesus Christ and to serve and help others. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, in closing. <coughs> you know, it's really interesting. <coughs> we often talk about Laodiceans. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what my basic approach is to the subject of Laodicea. Do you want to hear what it is? If I am naked, if I am uh, without the the things that I need, blind and naked and all the things that are that are a layer of sin is I need to know about it. I don't want to be that way. I want to see where I'm a layer of sin, and I most certainly don't want to point the finger at a whole lot of other people and call them layer to It's none of my business the only business that I have is that I don't be a Laodicean that I'm not a Laodicean I should say (laughs) and so we come to verse 21 of Revelation 3 where Jesus Christ addresses the Laodicean church and he says here in uh, sorry verse 20 verse 20 behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me you know, that's really the third law. Jesus Christ is knocking on our door, waiting for us to open. He won't bang, barge the door down. He won't force his way in. He won't pick the lock. He just just knock on the door. It's up to us to open the door and let Jesus Christ come into our life and live the life, the law of the life of the Spirit in Jesus Christ. And if and when we do that, we will have the power to overcome the law of sin and to keep the perfect law of liberty, the Ten Commandments, God's true and perfect law.